We're going to read All Creatures Great and Small again, so it's good to sit and visit with you. This is fun to do an Opa Reads chapter from All Creatures Great and Small. We're on chapter 25. It's published by St. Martin's Press, 1972. Here we go. I realized, quite suddenly, that spring had come. It was late March, and I had been examining some sheep in a hillside fold. On my way down, in the lee of a small pine wood, I leaned my back against a tree and was aware, all at once, of the sunshine, warm on my closed eyelids, the clamor of the larks, the muted sea sound of the wind in the high branches. And though the snow still lay in long runnels behind the walls, and the grass was lifeless and winter yellowed, there was the feeling of change, almost of liberation, because, unknowingly, I had surrounded myself with a carapace against the iron months, the relentless cold. It wasn't a warm spring, but it was dry with sharp winds which fluttered the white heads of the snowdrops and bent the clumps of daffodils on the village greens. In April, the roadside banks were bright with the fresh yellow of the primroses, and in April, too, came the lambing. It came in a great tidal wave, the most vivid and interesting part of the veterinary surgeon's year, the zenith of the annual cycle. And it came, as it always does, when we are busiest with our other work. In the spring, we, the livestock were feeling the effects of the long winter. Cows had stood for months in the same few feet of byre and were in dire need of the green grass and the sun on their backs, while their calves had very little resistance to disease. And just when we were wondering how we could cope with the coughs and colds and pneumonias and acetonemias, the wave struck us. The odd thing is that for about 10 months of the year, sheep hardly entered into the scheme of our lives. They were just woolly things on the hills. But for the other two months, they almost blotted out everything else. First came the early troubles, the pregnancy toxemias, the prolapses, then the lambings in a concentrated rush followed by the calcium deficiencies, the horrible gangrenous mastitis when the udder turns black and sloughs away, and the diseases which beset the lambs themselves. Swayback, pulpy kidney, dysentery. Then the flood slackened, became a trickle, and by the end of May had almost dried up. Sheep became woolly things on the hills again. But in this first year, I found a fascination in the work which, was re which has remained with me. Lambing, it seemed to me, had all the thrill and interest of calving without the hard labor. It was usually uncomfortable in that it was performed in the open, either in drafty pens improvised from straw bales and gates or more often out in the fields. It didn't seem to occur to the farmers that the ewe might prefer to produce her family in a warm place or that the vet may not enjoy kneeling for an hour in his shirt sleeves in the rain. But the actual job was as easy as a song. After my experiences in correcting the malpresentations of calves, it was delightful to manipulate these tiny creatures. Lambs are usually born in twos or threes, and some wonderful mix-ups occur. Tangles of heads and legs all trying to be first out, and it is the vet's job to sort them around and decide which leg belonged to which head. I reveled in this. It was a pleasant change to be, for once, stronger and bigger than my patient. But I didn't overstress this advantage. I have not changed the opinion I formed then that there are just two things to remember in lambing. Cleanliness and gentleness. And the lambs. All the young animals are appealing, but the lamb has been given an unfair share of charm. The moments come back of a bitterly cold evening when I had delivered twins on a wind-scoured hillside, the lambs shaking their heads convulsively, and within one minute, one of them struggling upright and making its way, unsteady, 
knock-kneed towards the udder, while the other followed resolutely on its knees. The shepherd, his purpled, weather-roughened face almost hidden by the heavy coat which muffled him to his ears, gave a slow chuckle. How the hell did they know? He had seen it happen thousands of times, and he still wondered. So do I. And another memory of 200 lambs in a barn on a warm afternoon. We were inoculating them against pulpy kidney, and there was no conversation because of the high-pitched protests of the lambs and the unremitting deep by from nearly a hundred ewes milling anxiously around in, outside. I couldn't conceive how these ewes could ever get their own families sorted out from that mass of almost identical little creatures. It would take hours. It took about 25 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> when we had finished injecting, we opened the barn doors and the outpouring lambs were met by a concerted rush of distraught mothers. At first, the noise was deafening, but it died away rapidly to an occasional bleat as the last stray was rounded up. Then, neatly paired off, the flock headed calmly for the field. Through May and early June, my world became softer and warmer. The cold wind dropped in the air, fresh as the sea, carried a faint breath of the thousands of wildflowers which speckled the pastures. At times, it seemed unfair that I should be paid for my work, for driving out in the early morning with the fields glittering under the first pale sunshine and the wisps of mist still hanging on the high tops. At Scaledale House, the wisteria exploded into a riot of mauve blooms, which thrust themselves through the open windows, and each morning as I shaved, I breathed in the heady fragrance from the long clusters drooping by the side of the mirror. Life was idyllic. There was only one jarring note. It was the time of the horse. In the 30s, there were still quite a lot of horses on the farms, though the tractors had already sounded their warning knell. In the farms near the foot of the dale, where there was a fair amount of arable land, the rows of stables were half empty, but there were still enough horses to make May and June uncomfortable. This was when the castrations were done. Before that came the foaling, and it was a common enough thing to see a mare with her foal either trotting beside her or stretched flat on the ground as its mother nibbled at the grass. Nowadays, the sight of a cart mare and foal in a field would make me pull up my car to have another look. There was all the work connected with the foalings. Cleansing the mares, docking the foal's tails, treating the illnesses of the newborn, joint ill, retained meconium, it was hard and interesting, but as the weather grew warmer and the farmers began to think of having the year-old colts castrated, I didn't like the job. And so there, since there might be up to a hundred to be done, it cast a shadow over this and many subsequent springs. For generations, the operation had been done by casting the colt and tie him, tying him up very like a trussed chicken. It was a bit laborious, but the animal was under the complete restraint and it was possible to concentrate entirely on the job. But about the time I qualified, standing castration was becoming very much to the fore. I'm sorry, was coming very much to the fore. It consisted simply of applying a twitch to the colt's upper lip, injecting a shot of some local anesthetic into each testicle, and going straight ahead. There was no doubt it was a lot quicker. The obvious disadvantage was that the danger of injury to the operator and his helpers were increased tenfold. But for all that, the method rapidly became more popular. A local farmer called Kenny Bright, who considered himself an advanced thinker, took the step of introducing it to the district. He engaged Major Farley, the horse specialist, to give a demonstration on one of his colts, and a large gathering of farmers came to spectate. 
Kenny, smug and full of self-importance, was holding the twitch and beaming around the company as his protege prepared to disinfect the operation site. But as soon as the major touched the scrotum with his antiseptic, antiseptic the colt reared and brought a forefoot crashing, crashing down on Kenny's head. He was carried away on a gate with his skull fractured and spent a long time in hospital. The other farmers didn't stop laughing for weeks, but the example failed to deter them. Standing castration was in. I said it was quicker. It was when everything went smoothly, but there were other times when the colt kicked or threw himself on top of us or just went generally mad. Out of 10 jobs, nine would be easy and the 10th would be a rodeo. I don't know how much apprehension the state of affairs built up in other vets, but I was undeniably tense on castration mornings. Of course, one of the reasons was that I was not, am not, and never will be a horseman. It is difficult to define the term, but I'm convinced the horsemen are either born or acquire the talent in early childhood. I knew it was no good my trying to start in my mid-twenties. I had the knowledge of equine diseases. I believed I had the ability to treat sick horses efficiently, but that power the real horseman had to soothe and quiet, quieten and mentally dominate an animal was beyond my reach. I didn't even try to kid myself. It was unfortunate because there is no doubt horses know. It is quite different with cows. They don't care either way. If a cow feels like kicking you, she will kick you. She doesn't care whether you're an expert or not. But horses know. So, on those mornings when my morale was never very high, as I drove out with my instruments rattling and rolling about on an enamel tray on the back seat, would he be wild or quiet? How big would he be? I had heard my colleagues airily stating their preferences for big horses. The two-year-olds were far easier, they said. You could get a better grip on the testicles, but there was never any doubt in my own mind. I liked them small, the smaller, the better. One morning when the season was at its height and I had had about enough of the equine race, Siegfried called to me as he was going out. James, there's a horse with a tumor on his belly at Wilkinson's of White Cross. Get along and take it off today if possible, but otherwise fix your own time. I'll leave it with you. Feeling a little disgruntled at fate having handed me something on top of the seasonal tasks, I boiled up a scalpel, tumor spoons, and syringe, and put them on my tray with local anesthetic, iodine, and tetanus antitoxin. I drove to the farm with the tray rattling ominously behind me. That sound always had a connotation of doom for me. I wondered about the horse. Maybe it was just a yearling. They did get those little dangling growths sometimes. Nanberries, the farmers called them. All over the six miles, I managed to build up a comfortable picture of a soft-eyed little colt with pendulous abdomen and over-long hair. It hadn't done well over the winter and was probably full of worms, shaky on its legs with weakness, in fact. At Wilkinson's, all was quiet. The yard was empty, except for a lad of about ten who, don't, who didn't know where the boss was. Well, where's the horse, I asked. The lad pointed to the stable. He's in there. I went inside. At one end stood a high, open-topped loose box with a metal grill topping the wooden walls, and from within I heard a deep-throated whinnying and snorting, followed by a series of tremendous thuds against the sides of the box. A chill crept through me. That was no little colt in there. I opened the top half door, and there, looking down at me, was an enormous animal. I hadn't realized horses ever came quite as big as this. A chestnut stallion with a proud arch to his neck and feet like manhole covers. Surging swaths of muscle shone on his shoulders and quarters 
And when he saw me, he laid back his ears, showed the whites of his eyes, and lashed out viciously against the wall. A foot-long splinter flew high in the air as the great hoof crashed against the boards. Almighty, I breathed and closed the door hurriedly. I leaned my back against the door and listened to my heart thumping. I turned to the lad. How old is that horse? Over six years, sir. I tried a little calm thinking. How did you go about tackling a man-eater like this? I had never seen such a horse. He must weigh over a ton. I shook myself. I hadn't even had a look at the tumor I was supposed to remove. I lifted the latch, opened the door about two inches, and peeped inside. I could see it plainly dangling from the belly, probably a paloma, about the size of a cricket ball with a lobulated surface which made it look a little like cauliflower. It swung gently from side to side as the horse moved about. No trouble to take it off. Nice narrow neck to it, a few cc's of local in there, and I could twist it off easily with the spoons. But the snag was obvious. I would have to go under that shining barrel of an abdomen within easy reach of the great feet and stick a needle into those few inches of skin. Not a happy thought. But I pulled my, man, my mind back to practical things, like a bucket of hot soap, water, hot water, soap, and a towel. And I need a good man on the twitch. I began to walk toward the house. There was no answer to my knock. I tried again, still nothing. There was nobody at home. It seemed the most natural thing in the world to leave everything till another day. The idea of going around the buildings and fields till I found somebody never entered my mind, my head. I almost broke into a gallop on my way to the car, backed it around with a tire squealing, and roared out of the yard. Siegfried was surprised. Nobody there. Well, that's a funny thing. I'm nearly sure they were expecting you today. But never mind. It's in your hands, James. Give them a ring and fix it up again as soon as possible. I found it wonderfully easy to forget about the stallion over the days and weeks that followed, except when my defenses were down. At least once a night, it thundered through my dreams with galloping nostrils and flying mane, and I developed an uncomfortable habit of coming bolt awake at 5 o'clock in the morning and staring immediately, starting immediately to operate on the horse. On an average, I took that tumor off 20 times before breakfast each morning. I told myself it would be a lot easier to fix the job up and get it over. What was I waiting for anyway? Was there a subconscious hope that if I put it off long enough, something would happen to get me off the hook? The tumor might fall off or shrink away and disappear, or the horse might drop down dead. I could have passed the whole thing on to Siegfried. He was good with horses, but my confidence was low enough without that. All my doubts were resolved one morning when Mr. Wilkinson came on the phone. He wasn't in the least upset in the, at the long delay, but he came made it quite clear that he could wait no longer. You see, I want to sell this ass some young man, but I can't let him go with that thing on him, can I? My journey to Wilkinson's wasn't enlivened by the familiar clatter of the tray on the back seat. It reminded me of the last time when I was wondering what was ahead of me. This time, I knew. Stepping out of the car, I felt almost disembodied. It was like walking a few inches above the ground. I was greeted by a reverberating din from the loose box, the same angry whinnies and splintering crashes I had heard before. I tried to twist my stiff face into a smile as the farmer came over. My chaps are getting a halter on him, he said, but his words were cut short by an enraged squealing from the box and two tremendous blows against the wooden sides. I felt my mouth going dry. The noise was coming nearer. Then the stable doors flew open and the great horse catapulted out into the yard, dragging two big fellows along on one end on the on the end of the halter shank. The cobbles struck sparks from the men's boots as they slithered about, but they were unable to stop this 
stallion backing and plunging. I imagined I could feel the ground shudder under my feet as the hooves crashed down. At length, after much maneuvering, the men got the horse standing with his offside against the wall of the barn. One of them looped the twitch onto the upper lip and tightened it expertly. The other took a firm grip on the halter and turned towards me. Ready for you now, sir. I pierced the rubber cap of the bottle of cocaine, withdrew the plunger of the syringe, and watched the clear fluid flow into the glass barrel. Seven, eight, ten cc's. If I could get that in, the rest would be easy. But my hands were trembling. Walking up to the horse was like watching an action from a film. It wasn't really me doing this. The whole thing was unreal. The near side eye flicked dangerously at me when I raised my left hand and passed it over the muscles of the neck, down the smooth quivering flank, and along the abdomen till I was able to grasp the tumor. I had the thing in my hand now, the lobulations firm and lumpy under my skin. I pulled gently downward, stretching the brown skin, joining the growth to the body. I would put the local in there, a few good wheels. It wasn't going to be so bad. The stallion laid back his ears and gave a warning wicker. I took a long, careful breath, brought up the syringe with my right hand, placed the needle against the skin, and then thrust it in. The kick was so explosively quick that only at first, that at first I felt only surprised that such a large animal could move so quickly, swiftly. It was a lightning outward slash that I never even saw, and the hoof struck the inside of my right thigh, spinning me round helplessly. When I hit the ground, I lay still, feeling only a curious numbness. Then I tried to move, and a stab of pain went through my leg. When I opened my eyes, Mr. Wilkinson was bending over me. Are you all right, Mr. Heriot? The voice was anxious. I don't think so. I was astonished at the matter-of-fact sound of my own words, but the stranger still was the feeling of being at peace with myself for the first time for weeks. I was calm and completely in charge of the situation. I'm not afraid, Mr. Wilkinson. You'd better put the horse... Uh, I'm afraid not, Mr. Wilkinson. You'd better put the horse back in his box for now. We'll have a go at him another day. And I wonder if you'd ring Mr. Farnan to come and pick me up. I don't think I'll be able to drive. My leg wasn't broken, but it developed a massive hematoma at the point of impact. And then the whole limb blossomed into an unbelievable range of colors from del delicate orange to deepest black. I was still hobbling like a Crimean veteran when a fortnight later, Siegfried and I, with a small army of helpers, went back and roped the stallion, chloroformed him, and removed that little growth. I have a cavity in the muscle of my thigh to remind me of that day, but some good came out of the incident. I found that the fear is worse than the reality, and horsework has never worried me as much since then. Well, I love you guys. Have a great day as you finish listening.